members of the congregation. You're here. You're part of the congregation. It's very great to have you all with us. And we're thankful to have so many. We're thankful to have you online. And everyone that's gathered together here, we are part of the congregation. But there's a sense where there is a group of people that we call the members, the church members. And not everyone is a church member of this local church here. Not everyone is a church member of every church there is. We're all so so what makes the difference? Why is someone a church member and somebody not a church member of, of Left Kosher Protestant Church or even the church there in Ephesus? Well anyone who is a church member needs to be a believer. They need to be a Christian. They need to be trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. People don't become members of this church here because they've been here for five years or five months or five weeks. It's not a time thing. People don't become a member of the church here because they drop a tithe and drop an offering and get involved in the cleaning and possibly do some singing and other things. You don't get membership by what you do. You become a member because of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for you on the cross. We could be like a banana in the sense we look lovely on the outside, but when we open us, we're rotten on the inside. And what Jesus came to do is wash us clean of our sins and to make us right with God. And anyone who's a member of this church needs to have that profession. And Paul here was speaking to Timothy, and Timothy was pastoring a local church, and a local church is an idea of God where people come together, and people come together to worship together, and people come together to have fellowship together, and people come together to look out for each other, and they make a commitment to one another. And so the members of this church here, they've made a commitment to each other. They've committed to pray for each other. They've committed to look out for each other. They've committed to worship alongside each other. They've committed to come under the authority of the church and the responsibility of the church. And that's just like it was in Acts and through the New Testament. And so this morning I'm particularly addressing the members of the church. I'm particularly addressing all people who are Christians. But if you are not a Christian here this morning, I just want to challenge you with the question, why not? Why are you not trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins? We've all sinned. We've put our hands up already to that. And so what or who are you trusting to deal with your sins? The only person we can trust to deal with our sins is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only one who was sinless. He's the only one that can pay the price for our sins. And as you become part of a local church, Paul, uh, in this letter, and we looked at this last week, deals with church life and the issue of prayer. The first thing that he mentions to this church in Ephesus via Timothy was prayer. And he urged them to pray. And we see that in verse 1 of this chapter. And not only did he urge them to pray, but he explained what prayer was. And we thought about this last week. Supplications, intercessions, and thanksgiving. And, And they were told who to pray for. They were told to pray for all people. For kings and all who are in high positions. And what were they to pray for? They were to pray for them so that they could have a peaceful and quiet and godly life. 
And they were to pray for them so that they would come to know Jesus as their Savior. As a church, we should be a shining light out to the world. As a church, we should be praying to God to save those who are outside in the world. And then lastly, last week, we saw that there was a posture of prayer. In that particular example, Paul told Timothy that he wanted the men to pray lifting holy hands. And we were reminded last week that it's not so matter the posture of prayer, because some place in the Bible it tells us to lift our hands, some places it tells us to kneel and lie, some places it tells us to sit, sometimes it places to bow our heads. There's lots of different ways that people have prayed in the Bible. There's lots of different postures that you could have. It's not about the posture that's important. What's important here is they were to lift holy hands. There's a call to holiness. They should be without anger or quarreling. We're called to holiness as a church. And, and, and last week I said the first part of the, the, the chapter, we're looking at uh, prayer, and then we we're going to go on to the section of conduct. And so that's where we're going this morning. We're looking at the next part of this passage, and we're looking at the, 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 the section of this passage, which is uh, addressing conduct in church life. Or if you've seen the notice or the advert, I put beauty parlor. And you might be thinking, why did you think about church being like a beauty parlor? Well, we're going to come on to that and we're going to see why that was there. Now, this particular passage of Scripture, and you may have thought about it when we read it last week, and you thought, oh, this is going to be interesting. Uh, And you maybe thought about it again when it was read today. This passage of Scripture can be difficult. It can be difficult because it polarizes opinions. You see, it spoke out against the culture and sin of that day. When Paul wrote it, it was difficult. And now, 2,000 years on, this passage still speaks out against the culture and the sin of today. And so this passage really speaks into our own situation and our own life, just as it spoke into the situation back then, 2,000 years ago. So as we look at this passage, we, we have to ask ourselves the question, How are we going to approach it? How are we going to approach this passage of God's Word? Are we going to look at it from the perspective that God is King of kings and Lord of lords, and this is His Word? And His Word is all-important. Or are we going to come to God's Word this morning with our own agenda? And maybe the agenda and the thoughts of today's culture. And maybe with the ideas of modern science and modern humanities and modern ideas. How are we going to approach God's Word? Now, if you come and approach God's Word and you bring your own agenda and you bring your own culture and you bring your own thoughts, then you're going to change it from being God's Word to your ideas of God's Word. And if that's what you want, you can keep it. Because what's important for us is to realize that this is God's living Word. And God's living Word trumps, outshines anything 
of this world's wisdom now. And so as we come to this passage, we we need humility. And we need a teachable spirit. And we need the Holy Spirit to help us in that way. Now when I was reading this passage uh, and working with this passage, I, I, I had this sort of thought in my mind, I can't imagine what Paul would feel like now if he visited the UK, if he visited America, if he saw the church around the world, if he saw how our culture is here in Cyprus. How would he be writing this part of the Scriptures? Would it have been different? Or would it have been the same? Back in July 2016, uh, Ben Shapiro, a radically conservative uh, commentator on the U.S., was engaged in a very heated political discussion on the Dr. Drew show. There were a panel of guests discussing an issue, and one of the guests was someone who was transgender. Biologically, he was a man, but he was identifying as a woman. Now, the discussion got very heated, uh, to the point that Ben asked this rather elegantly, effeminately dressed person, What are your genetics, sir? Now that was a red rag to a bull because his pronouns were not sir. And so he put his arm around Ben's neck and this was his response. Or this was her response, I'm not sure. You can cut that out now or you will go home in an ambulance. And as Ben tweeted a little bit later, he said, that's not very ladylike behavior. Our first point for this morning is men will be men. And the Apostle Paul says that he desires them in every place, that men should pray lifting hands without anger or quarreling. And through the the work of the Holy Spirit, Paul knew that men's default position even when they're pretending to be women, is to anger and quarreling. You see, we, we've got to see this here in the context of where Paul is, at, Paul is at and where Timothy's at and where people are at and where men are at. And generally speaking, that the default position for a man is for his anger to be shown physically, his anger to be shown verbally. His anger to come out in the rising of his fists. Uh, this, this is seen by the fact that men commit most instances of violent crime. Uh, the FBI statistic for 2019 in the US states that most, if not nearly all, of the homicide, rape, robbery, and aggressive assault were all committed by men. To us men here, this is particularly for us, our challenge is this. That although we might not be more angry than women, and although anger is something that women have, our tendency as men is to react with quarreling. 
we as men are much more likely to lift our fists in anger than to lift holy hands in prayer. See, the church at Ephesus had quarrels, and they came from religious discussions. We can read about it in 2 Timothy 2.23, and it says, Have nothing to do with the foolish, ignorant, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And, and so these brothers back then were having wrestling matches and fighting over foolish and ignorant controversies. And rather than coming in prayer, lifting holy hands, they were fighting each other. Because that is more like how men act. And they were fighting over what they may have thought was important. They may have thought it was very important. They may have thought that these genealogies and and these controversies were really important but they weren't they were foolish and ignorant and they shouldn't have been fought about but even if there is an important thing there is no place for angry quarrels in the church and this is underlined in the letter of James and James puts it like this in, in 120 of, of, the, of the letter of the James the epistle of James he says for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires. So even if you're getting angry and violent in regard to something that you think is righteous, you are not doing the righteousness that God requires. And Paul knew that anger and quarreling gets in the way of our personal prayers, and it gets in the way of our corporate prayers. And if we want to be a church that is truly praying, if we want to be a church that's truly doing that first point of great importance of bringing all people and praying for all people and wanting to see salvation brought, then the men especially need to look at their hearts and work on anger and quarreling. Jesus said it like this, In Matthew chapter 5 and 23, when he's talking to his disciples and others, he said, if you're offering your gift, so this is Matthew 5, 23, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and then you remember your brother has something against you, there's a problem. The brother, there's been a fight. Leave your gift before the altar. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. We have to pray aright. And praying aright isn't just the words that we say. Praying aright is where our heart is. And brothers, as Paul is saying to Timothy, our particular challenge can be our heart in regard to anger and quarreling and violence. In some ways, our attitude is less damaging to our personal prayers because it just affects you. But if you are leading prayers, if you are being led in prayers, your heart, is, your heart attitude affects everyone. And so that's why it's so important, and we're coming on to it later about choosing people who are going to be elders and deacons. This is why we have to be very careful about their character. Because if these people are angry people, if these people are those who are always quarreling or fighting, and they're leading us in prayers, how's that going to work out? 
it's not going to be good for the church. And so as we, brothers, come to worship, as, as you left your house this morning, where was your heart attitude as you came? Had you dealt with the sin in your life? Had you asked God to forgive you in preparation of worshiping here this morning? But just as we see that men will be men, we also see that the Apostle Paul, speaking to Timothy, said that women will be women in some ways. So moving on to another point. Through the work of the Holy Spirit, Paul knew that a woman's, a lady's, a sister's default position was to miss the point of beauty. In the same setting, he says to the woman, likewise also. So he's spoken to the men, he's addressed the men, as you come to church, as you pray, this is how you should come. And he's saying to the ladies, likewise also, this is how you should come. He says you should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. Just as the men are told that they come, when they come to church, when they come before God, they have to come in the right way, so do the ladies. But anger is not called out in their situation. Sisters, that's not where your main battle is. It's somewhere else. Now, when I was eight or nine, I think I was eight or nine, I don't know my exact age, but, but a friend of our family uh, kindly gave me seven pairs of underpants. Boxers, yeah? Why I remember this, I'll let you know exactly. Now, this auntie explained that there were seven pairs, and there were seven pairs for every day of the week. And as she was looking through them, she pulled a pair out, and she said, these are the best ones. These are the ones you wear on Sunday. Have you heard the idea of your Sunday best clothing? I'm sure you have. I see some of you here, and you come on Sunday by Sunday, and you come well turned out. Now, the, the idea of Sunday best comes out of the thought that what we wear is a reflection of our heart. Now, Paul explains a principle here. And, and we have to be careful with this passage. There are some things that are principles, and they don't change. And some things are how that principle is applied to the culture. And, and the principle here is that as ladies come into the church situation, as ladies conduct themselves as Christian believers, they should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. So the principle, ladies, the principle, sisters, is this. Your duty as, as a sister, as a Christian, as a child of God, is to dress yourself respectably, is to dress yourself modestly, is to dress yourself with self-control. And that doesn't change. That, that's for now. That's for them back then, and that is for us right now. It's a principle from God given to us, given to you ladies. And if you want to come to church, if you want to approach God, if you want to be righteous, if you want to be godly, then you have to take into consideration what you wear, 
And it needs to be respectable. It needs to be modest. And to do that, you will need self-control. And then Paul goes on and applies it to the culture of that day. Because then he brings out an example. And he brings out the example of braided hair and gold and pearls and costly attire. Now that is not a principle. That is an example of the principle. You see, what was going on 2,000 years ago in Ephesus, there was a standard dress code for the cult prostitutes of Diana of the Ephesians. People worshipped Diana of the Ephesians. And their dress code and how they looked was having great long braided hair, golden pearls, and costly apparel. And sadly, what was happening in this church in Ephesus was some of the sisters there, it would seem, were beginning to look no different than the prostitutes. They were wearing the same type of clothing. They were looking like the prostitutes from the cult shrine. And so the application to them was, that's not respectable. That is not modest. That is not showing self-control. That's just following what everyone else is doing. And because you are doing that, you're bringing dishonor to God. And so, not for a moment am I saying that the application for you sisters now is to burn your wigs and to burn your braids and just to come with whatever your hair looks like. That's not the application. But we have to ask a few pointed questions. And and maybe you may need to make some changes. Just like the gentlemen have to look into their hearts and fight anger and fight quarreling and fight sin, you ladies may have to do something. Now, I've said the application is not to ban braided hair. No. But if too much of your money and time is taken up on your braiding, and if your budget for clothing and beauty is affecting how you give to God's work, and if it stops you from being generous, and if it stops you from being hospitable, then I think there's a problem. And sister, if you are spending more time on your hair and your appearance and shopping for your clothes than you do in God's word or encouraging other sisters, then I think there is a problem. And when you get dressed and when you choose your clothes, you have to ask the question, is this respectable? How, how do you work that one through? Well, I think this might help, yeah? If you are asking, if you're going for a job interview, what sort of clothing would you wear for that? Modesty. Does this clothing cover you properly? Or you could ask yourself a different way. How much of you is on show? That's, that's the reality of it. And and it's not just about being covered nowadays because there are some outfits that cover every part of the body nowadays, but they are so tight to the body, you might as well be naked. And that's not modest. And you see, that's why self-control is here. 
you see, we're told, you're told, sisters, to be respectable. You're told to be modest. And then it says you have to exercise self-control. And when I first read that through, it looked to me like that was out of place. Why is self-control there? And it's this. It's because you are not going to get dressed like the world. Those ladies in Ephesus were just following what was going on out on the street. The street fashion was to dress yourself like a prostitute. And so that came into the church. And self-control says, no, I am not going to follow that. I'm not going to do that. And you need self-control because if you follow this respectable dress, if you follow this modesty, you are not going to dress like the world. Now, not for a minute is this saying you have to be all covered in black from foot to foot and, 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 and look like a sack of potatoes. That's not what it's saying. And when people get that there, it's wrong. But it is saying you're not going to look like the Kardashians. You're not going to look like you've just left the nightclub. You're not going to aspire after the style of the footballer's wife or the gangster's girlfriend. Your clothing aspirations are not going to follow the dancer on some music video because none of those things are respectable and none of those things are modest and none of those things bring glory to God. They bring shame. We were given a covering for a purpose. Tragically, a taxi driver in Cyprus was explaining his confusion. He was taking girls to a church, and as he said, he said they were dressed like they should have been in a nightclub. And so, sisters, you need to think about this. But the theologian John Stott said something very positive about this passage. And it's very easy for you sisters to feel like you're being beaten up about this. And that's not what this is about. And on the whole, I am so thankful to God for how you ladies do come to church and you are dressed modestly. And, and you do exercise self-control. And I'm so thankful to that. And I want to encourage that. And I want you to encourage you in this way. You see, the church, as John Stott said, and this is where the beauty parlor comes in, so listen. He says the church should be a veritable beauty parlor. It should be an absolute beauty parlor because it encourages its lady members to adorn themselves in good deeds. See, girls, don't see this as a negative. See, see this as a positive. What, what the teaching here is for you is not about the negative. The teaching here is about the positive. And the positive is this, is to, to clothe yourself as a proper, what is proper for a woman who professes godliness. And what is that? With good works. You see, your heart attitude will not just be reflected in your clothing, but be reflected in your deeds. It'll be reflected in your godliness. It'll be uh, reflected in your good works. And I thank God that for so many here, we see those good works. But sisters, I want you to just ask yourself the question, what is your clothing saying about your heart attitude as you come to worship? But I want to come back and address you men here. Because part of the problem that ladies have is because of you. You see, if you give the immodestly dressed woman all the attention, what are you saying? 
If, if you are giving the immodestly dressed woman all the attention, gentlemen, what are you saying to the girls? You're saying that's, that's, that's what we want. Bring it on. Let's have more of it. And what's the girl going to do? She's going to be tempted to go down that way. If you just run after, gentlemen, the pretty girls that you are lusting after and pay no attention to the real beauty that God sees in godliness, then what are you promoting? And so, brothers, you have a responsibility here too. You, you, to, you are to check your lust. You're to flee youthful passions, as it said later. And you're to remember this, brothers, that charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. But the woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. And sadly, in too many institutions and churches around the world now, what is put on display is charm and beauty, and that's celebrated. And because that is celebrated, the world and the church go down the hill faster. And brothers, what we should be celebrating and what we should be praising and what we should be looking up to is the woman who fears the Lord. And that's the standard that we should be looking at. And so, brothers, maybe your unchecked lust is fueling this problem. And if it is, confess it and flee youthful passions. But brothers, there's another problem. There's another problem that you may have. You see, this world is changing. This world is changing dramatically from the time that Paul was there. We have principles, absolutely. And it seems as though nowadays that men are not quite so good at quarreling and fighting. But actually, men are becoming more better at being effeminate. And, and, and the beauty industry across the world is worth $483 billion. That's a big figure. That's a monstrous figure. $483 billion. And brothers, 25% of that is ours. I don't think that's what it was like 2,000 years ago. I don't think the brothers in Ephesus moisturized and went to the gym and did their hair and wore Armani. No. But they do now. The brothers now get seduced into this whole world and this confusion. There's real confusion. And and this challenge that was back 2,000 years ago, which was principally just for the ladies, is actually coming into the church and being a confusion to us now. The global fashion market is worth $1,512 billion. And gentlemen, we're responsible for 49% of it. We can't just blame Eve on this one. We have to hold our hands up. And so, gentlemen, I'm not saying for a moment that your image and and your dress and your appearance is not important. But it certainly must not be all-consuming or all-important. And so, brother, when you get yourself dressed, when you think of your clothing, when you think of your wardrobe, what is your motivation? 
What is your motivation? Is it for practical function? Or is your motivation to make a personal statement? A personal statement of your wealth? A personal statement of your status? A a personal statement of your privilege? Because if it's those things, you've got it wrong. Clothes have got a function. Yes, they should look smart. Yes, they can look smart. That's good. But when clothing becomes your identity, you've lost the plot. You are no longer being godly. Brother, how much time do you spend in the gym? I know how much time you spend in front of that mirror out there because I can see people arriving and they look in that mirror before they go upstairs to the gym. And then when they come back down, they take even longer because everything looks a bit better. But is your time in the gym or in front of the mirror longer than the time you spend in God's Word? And what is your time in the gym for? Is it to look after your body or is it to make people look at your body? And yes, ladies, you can do this as well so you can apply it in the same way. And that is your... I'm not quite sure how to say this delicately. But brothers, your toned, buffed, body has no place being displayed in church. In actual fact, it's got no place being displayed out there. God willing, one day it'll be for your wife to enjoy, but not for the world to lust after. Bodily exercise, bodily training has some value. But godliness has value in every way. And it holds a promise for this present life and the life to come. Brothers, that's what we should be aiming for. Now, verses 11 and 14 carry on about this confusion. And we've got no time to look at that this week. And we will be coming back to that next week. So ladies, you need to be here next week. And gentlemen, you do, because this really does affect us all. And there's lots of confusion around there. But I just want to wrap up where we've been already in this passage. And fourthly, I want to remind you that sin is sin. And these things that have been highlighted, they're not funny, they are sin. You see, we all recognize that anger is sin. We can can, can identify that as sin, and we can say that is sin, and that's wrong, and and quarreling and fighting are sin. And, And someone's going to say to me this evening, but God gets angry, and there's just anger, and I'm saying, yes, that's right, okay. So let's say that Unjust anger, which is mainly what we have, and quarreling or fighting are sin. And we can address that and see that as sin. But also immodesty is sin. Having no self-control is sin. Putting more importance in your outward beauty and appearance than God is sin. When you put something in God's place, it is idolatry. When something is idolatry, it is sin. And you see, this is what was happening in this church. Things were getting in the way of God, and it is sin. Anger was getting in the way of God, and it is sin. Lust was getting in the way of God, and it is sin. Dress code and and, and beauty was getting in the way of God, and it is sin. And friends, we have to look at this stuff and call it for what it is and not be afraid to call it for what it is and deal with it for what it is. Sin separates you from God. 
And you see, Christian friend, Christ died on the cross to deal with your sins, not to let you continue to play with them. Sins must be repented of. And if through looking at this passage of Scripture now, if you have been touched through the work of the Holy Spirit and you are realizing that you've sinned, then what you need to do is take that sin and repent of it. Don't be defined by it. And don't go back to it like the dog to its vomit. Ask God to change you and help you. Nancy Guthridge, in a book that she wrote, said it like this in regard to that verse about putting on modesty. She said, rather than making a fashion statement with our clothes that will turn heads in our direction. So rather than a fashion statement with our clothes that will turn heads in our direction, we want to make fashion statements with our characters that will cause heads to turn in Christ's direction. Amen? Your character, brothers, your character, sisters, should be a fashion statement that turns heads to look at Christ. You see, this passage is a call to holiness. And this passage shouldn't leave us feeling empty and beaten up. Yes, you may be feeling reprimanded, But these verses are a call to holiness. They're a call to what God wants His church to look like. And the backdrop of this is God is wanting to save people. And God uses His church to save people. And if the church is just like the culture of the world, if the church acts and behaves like a nightclub, if the church acts and behaves no differently to a social event outside then what is that saying to the world? What difference has the gospel made? The gospel, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, should make a difference in our lives. Sin has been dealt with. Sin has been conquered with. And if the sins of this world are just apparent in this building as the outside, what have we been saved from? We naively think we've got an insurance policy. We've been saved from eternal fire. And I bought it by being in church for an hour a week for a few years. That's not knowing God. When we know God through Christ, there is a call to holiness. One way of understanding this last verse, 15, it's, it starts by this very difficultly, yet she will be saved through childbearing. We'll, we'll come to this more next week, but one of the ways that it's understood is to think of that childbearing as a childbearing of Christ coming into this world, as promised in Genesis 3, to be a ransom for the sins of his people. And that's how we can respond. Christ came into this world to save his people from their sins. Brothers and sisters, you, like me, will have messed up. But we can come to God through Christ and seek forgiveness. And as his redeemed church, as that verse goes on to say, we've been saved by grace. But the fruit of saving grace in our life is seen in faith and love and holiness and self-control. 
And that self-control is primarily seen in this passage over anger and by what we wear and how we conduct ourselves. Amen.